How much is the Cato Daily Podcast worth to you? We certainly enjoy putting it together for you, and we know from all the positive feedback that it's an important part of many of our listeners' days. If you value our distinctly libertarian perspective, I hope you'll consider joining our new podcast sponsor program. If you visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor, you can learn about various levels of support and the benefits you'll enjoy as a Cato sponsor. For example, if you become a patron sponsor by giving $1,000 or more, I'll personally thank you on the podcast, and you'll get the regular benefits of being a Cato patron as well. If you prefer, you can donate in a friend or family member's name as well. It's the perfect gift for someone who values liberty but has everything else. Learn more about the benefits of becoming a podcast sponsor at cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And as always, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 26, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Two cases of police killing Americans on video. Two very different results. What was the difference between the death of Walter Scott at South Carolina, shot in the back by police, and the death of Daniel Shaver, crawling and begging for his life before he was killed by police? Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute, comments. There's a whole long list of cases where police officers have uh, shot unarmed people who turn out presented no real threat to them. Um, of course, that's you know it's easy to say in retrospect, and I understand that in the moment it, it can be hard. But it, that was not the case in either of these cases. These were essentially both extrajudicial executions. Um, both of the police officers in this case uh, are, as far as I'm concerned, are both murderers. Uh, uh, the um, uh, Michael Slager was the one who uh, shot Walter Scott in the back as Walter Scott was fleeing from him. That is very clearly a homicide. Side, um, he was prosecuted. Uh, the Michael Slager, the officer, was prosecuted in state and tried in state court, and that jury actually hung. Believe it or not, um, they could not come to a verdict uh, in his state court prosecution. The only reason why he ended up being sentenced to prison is that the U.S. Department of Justice got involved. They brought uh, federal civil rights charges and essentially uh, uh, pressured him into um, entering a guilty plea, which is what they typically do. In fact, 97% of all criminal convictions in the federal system are obtained through plea bargain and not a jury trial. So that's basically how the DOJ operates. Uh, and somewhat surprisingly, the judge in that case really came down hard. I think the expectation uh, was that he would get a sentence of something about like 10 years and he actually got 20, which in my judgment is closer to what he deserved. I think he is a murderer. The other uh, case, the one in Mesa, Arizona, where Philip Brailsford, who was a tactical officer with the Mesa uh, uh, Police Department, they were responding to a call of a, a man with a gun in a hotel. It turned out it was just a pest control guy with, who was showing people the pellet gun that he used to control rats on the property. Uh, uh, he was obviously drunk. That he encountered the SWAT team in the hall. Uh, they yelled a series of of completely uh, confusing and and uh, increasingly belligerent commands at him. You know, hands up, hands down, kneel, crawl, uh, and and the poor guy, as you said, was uh, sobbing and and begging for them not to shoot him, and they did. Um, uh, one of the one of the officers, uh, Brailsford, unleashed a fusillade of five shots at a crawling, sobbing man. Um, uh, this police officer is clearly unfit. Um, he's inept. He may also be a coward. Uh, uh, and he was uh, tried for murder and acquitted by a jury uh, last week. Okay, so uh, a lot of these cases come down to what a police officer felt at the time. Right. And a scared police officer, 
um, it's in almost every case, it seems, gets off. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially that there's this informal uh, uh, notion called the scared cop rule. And the idea is that it describes the, the standard that the jury is given in most of these cases. And they're told essentially, don't decide whether uh, the officer was correct or incorrect in using force in this case. Um, the only question is whether you believe that he would, you know, reasonably feared for his life at the time. But look, I mean, when you're pointing a gun at another human being, um, that's a very provocative act. And it's reasonable for you as the person with the gun to to be fearful. Because why? Because you're pointing a gun at another human being and some people react to that badly. So pretty much by definition, you created a situation where it's reasonable for you to be afraid of the other person. Why? Because you're pointing a gun at him. And so it's it's almost, I mean, if this is the jury instruction that, that we're going to give, it's it's almost guaranteeing a result. And let me add, by the way, that this, this isn't necessarily the right standard. And in fact, um, in, in most European countries, police officers are not permitted to uh, shoot somebody just because they, they, they're afraid of them. Um, they, the standard is that they can only use lethal force as an absolute last resort when they are certain that the other person presents an imminent threat to their life. That is a radically different standard than the one we have here in the United States and a much more appropriate standard than the so-called scared cop rule. So what is the fix here? Uh, is it to just simply decide as a legal matter in the United States that cops aren't as special as they have been treated uh, up to now? I think that's definitely uh, a first step. Uh, the What we need to do is it needs to be a change in culture. You know, the Radley Balco and others have talked about how it seems that the, the old motto of to protect and to con- ed- to protect and to serve, somehow changed along the way to whatever it takes to come home alive at the end of my shift. Can you imagine what we would think of a firefighter whose motto was whatever it takes to come home at the, alive at the end of my shift? We think that person was a coward. Uh, and so for police officers to essentially take the position that um, when, whenever there's any pot doubt about you know the possibility that I might get shot or I might get hurt, um, I'm, I need to be able to shoot first, uh, even if it wasn't certain that my life was in danger. We need to change that uh, professional ethic. We need to change that culture. And then we also need to recognize that the criminal justice system is probably not ever going to be a reliable tool for ensuring accountability uh, on the part of police officers, in part because they work so closely with prosecutors. And I'm not saying that prosecutors necessarily always kind of throw the game, but there's some suspicion, I think well-founded, that maybe in some cases they don't proceed as zealously against police officers as they would against uh, people that they don't work with. And and it's, it should keep in mind that prosecutors, when they are in a room with a grand jury, are both uh, technical advisors on matters of law and also advocates for the grand jury when it comes time to decide whether or not to bring charges. Yeah, and, and just to take one example, I mean, everybody knows that the standard, I think everybody knows that the standard procedure for prosecutors in a grand jury is to present your side of the case and don't uh, present evidence that that tends to exonerate the person that you want to indict. That's perfectly permissible. It's how grand juries work. The prosecutor is there to try to present as much evidence as possible to, you know, essentially say, can we proceed with, with the prosecution? Um, just to take one example, the uh, uh, police officer who shot Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, um, he was charged in that in that shooting. But when the prosecutor presented the case to the grand jury, he did something very unusual, which is that he presented uh, both, um, uh, you know, inculpatory evidence, evidence that was bad for uh, the, uh, the the police officer, uh, Darren Wilson. And he also presented evidence that was 
exculpatory. In other words, the, he, he, he put on both sides of the case. That is not how prosecutors normally proceed and it can hardly be an accident that he chose to this very unusual procedure in a case involving a police officer defendant. And that's what I'm talking about. We, we, there's just it's, – it's a mistake to rely on the criminal justice system to reliably uh, impose proper accountability on, on misbehaving police officers. So if step one is – sort of reduce the level of specialness and uh, protection that we provide to police. What's step two? So I think step two is we need to get serious about um, providing the correct incentives uh, for uh, the, the people who are in the best position to keep inept cowards like Mitch uh, Brailsford, Philip Mitch Brailsford, uh, the one who uh, uh, murdered Daniel Shaver in Arizona um, in the hallway of that, ho that motel to keep them off the force and certainly to keep them away from these tactical teams that uh, find themselves in, in, you know, in the most tense confrontations with citizens. And how do we do that? We make sure that they are properly exposed to civil liability, um, which the Supreme Court has made that, you know, has, has essentially gutted uh, the, the civil rights law that enables people to, to hold police officers and police departments um, uh, financially accountable for the misconduct of police officers. We need to restore that accountability uh, in, in order to provide the right incentives to make sure that these people are either not hired or terminated when it's clear that they're not right for the job. What does that liability look like? A more robust wrongful death that the departments have to take upon themselves? Is that what it looks like? I think it's twofold. I think first we need to eliminate what are called immunity doctrines. Essentially, these are sort of free passes that the Supreme Court has handed out to law enforcement. Uh, they include qualified immunity, um, the elimination of the standard common law rule that the employer is financially responsible for the actions of, of the employee. That's called respondeat superior. Believe it or not, the Supreme Court eliminated that just out of, you know, uh, on a whim. Um, and so we need to restore, uh, the, the again, the proper incentives. And a huge change that would really matter, I think, a lot would be to force individual police officers uh, to, to purchase their own insurance just the way other professionals do, doctors and lawyers, um, and then make the, the uh, uh, damages payments come from those policies and also make the police departments accountable and liable for the actions of their own employees, that is the police officers, make them buy their own insurance and do this, one more thing. Um, when premiums go up because of large damages uh, awards and and they have to be paid out and that makes just like when you get in a car wreck, your, your, you know, your car insurance goes up, make sure that the sting from those increased premiums is felt by the officers and the departments. Don't let them take it out of the general budget. Make sure it comes out of their salary so that when, when they mess up or when one of their colleagues messes up, incurs a large damages judgment, they feel that in their pocketbooks. That's how you get changes in behavior. Clark Neely is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. And now a special thank you to one of our newest supporters of the Cato Daily Podcast, David Perdue. Thank you for your generous support of the Cato Daily Podcast and for maintaining your support as a patron-level sponsor. Without supporters like you, we couldn't do our work at all. If you would like to become a Cato podcast sponsor like my new and dear friend David, visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor.